going to start by reading in Genesis chapter 3, because we're going to be covering the second half of Genesis chapter 3 today after Johnny did uh, us the service of uh, covering the first half last week. So come in, take your seats, get comfortable, get your Bibles open to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, Serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree 
of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are older than we are. Lord, you were there for these things, and we were not. We're trying to understand. We have this text that you've preserved from us to help us understand. But Lord, we take comfort that you are the same yesterday and today and forever, that you who were there are the same as you who are here, and that you who created and loved Adam and Eve are the same who created and loved each of us. And that nothing here is really new, Lord. So we just ask that you help us to see what you have for us. We ask that you help us to understand you and what you're doing and why we're here and what you've called us to, Father. We ask that you show us your goodness and that you show us your light. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, good morning to those of you who are online. Good morning to those of you in the future, including me, who will watch this later to see what I said. Um, I always do that. I'm always like, oh, that was interesting. I didn't... Somebody asked me this morning, they said, are you ready for this morning? I said, I'm ready to see what God has for us here. So um, this, uh, this, is a, this is a neat passage. I want to talk through, and ju- you can't really separate these out that's why we, we split it into two, but it wasn't so that, um, so that we could really bifurcate these. It was so that we could spend a lot of time here. And so Johnny gave some really good orientation to the fall and the trees and the serpent. And I'm going to re-address some of that, not because he didn't do an adequate job, but because you could spend a whole lot of time, as I have for months, in uh, trying to understand what's really going on here in Genesis. And so we're going to readdress some of it. And I'm going to dangle some things that um, are maybe worth pursuing, maybe not, that God can put that on your heart or not. But there are some key things that we really need to know and some main things we want to take. And we're going to spend most of our um, time in Genesis and Revelation and somewhere in between. So you've got that going for you. So have your Bibles ready. All right. Let's jump right in. Who do we have going on here? We've got the Garden of Eden, we've got God, we've got a serpent, and we've got Adam and Eve. Those are the main folks we're working with here. But more importantly, let's start by recognizing that Genesis as a whole wasn't written to postmodern American evangelical Western Christians. It's for us, in a way. But we were not the original intended audience. God's preserved it for us. He's continued to teach us, uh, and, and His Word is alive and active, and it's always good. But if we want to get the most out of it, we can't just look at the Bible and expect that it's just going to somehow transport us to where we need to be. You have to do the work. And the work is to recognize, what is the book? Where did it come from? What kind of writing is it? To whom was it written? And what might the original audience have been perceiving as they read this or heard this text for the first time? Who penned Genesis? Who put it down? It was Moses, okay? So, a ways ways after the fact. And who was with and around Moses? The Israelites, post-Egypt, right? 
So there's some things that we can kind of take for granted in here that when we look at stuff and raise our eyebrow and go, what is he talking about? You got to go say, well, what might they have thought he was talking about? So let's start with the exercise of the serpent. We just have this statement at the beginning of Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I spent a lot of time in the languages there. It's, it's a hard, hard verse, especially that word other. It's very hard to tell if it's saying the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field or more crafty than any other beast of the field. And a lot of people put a lot of theology to say, well, this is just a serpent. I'm going to say it's not just a serpent because he's talking and snakes don't do that, right? And, and like, I'm just going to start there. It seems simple and maybe it's simplistic, but like, no, this is not your, it, it's not a beast of the field because he knows things and he's talking to Eve. And she seems fine with it. She's not even freaked out. Okay, so what's the serpent? Well, we know, and we'll go there later, we know from Scripture it's the devil, because Scripture is very clear on that. Some people try to equivocate that, but in Revelation it's very clear. But what would the original readers have thought when Moses said something like, now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field, or the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field God had made? Now, did God make everything? He did. Is this serpent a typical beast of the field? Not necessarily. So what would the original Israelites have been thinking? Well, we have some clues. Where did they spend the last 400 years? Egypt. Does Egypt know a thing or two about serpents? You think some of that may be rubbed off on the Israelites? There are two major serpents in Egypt. There's one called Wajet, who's a, actually a, a mother-type serpent, so happy Mother's Day. Um, and that was, that was the, but she was, a, she was a pretty good serpent, and she, that was the one that they wore, if you've seen the headdresses, they, they wore it, and there's a fancy word for that, and it was kind of a protective symbol, and it was the acknowledgement of this Wajet serpent. But then there was this other serpent, who was called the serpent, and if you want to go all the way back, his name was, uh, in Greek, is Apophis or they call him Epop, and you can, there's, he's all over the hieroglyphs, and he was not so good. He was the, the god of malevolent darkness, chaos, disorder, and evil. So, we're getting a little closer to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and, he, and, and Apophis was so uh, dominant that he was considered the one who every day would chase the sun across the sky and try to eat it while uh, Ra and his friends tried to fight the serpent off. So every day they were seeing this battle of light and darkness. They must have freaked out when there was a solar eclipse. Um, so, they had, so there was this concept of an evil, dominant, dark, sinister, chaotic serpent. And we can get a little bit more there because in the creation narrative, what did we just have? We had God coming into a place where there was chaos and disorder, and the first thing He does is separates the light from the dark. So, all these, these Israelites who have, who have had all kinds of, of legends and concepts and, and com, uh, complex uh, deity systems would have been nodding along. They've heard all this before. Now, a lot of the creation narrative in Genesis has a tremendous amount in common 
with other ancient creation narratives. The Sumerian, the Babylonian, the Egyptian, all the way to the Polynesian, which of course they were not necessarily as influenced by, all the way to the Native American and the Toltecs and the Mayans and the Nordics. The thing that changes is not what happened, it's which side you're on. That's what shifts around a lot. And in fact, uh, the, the Babylonian in particular, and I'm, I'm highlighting this because we're going to talk a little bit about Babylon if we can get to it today, the Babylonian narrative very, very much was in favor of this serpent character. The Egyptians were kind of ambiguous. They were a little torn because they, they somehow attri they attributed sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but they didn't like this Apophis guy, but they did like Wajet. She was different. Which brings up the question of how many serpents are there? How many serpent beings are there? Now, by the way, the other interesting thing about uh, Wajet and Apophis and a lot of the other ancient uh, uh, serpents is they walked. If you go look up the hieroglyphs of Wajet and Apophis, they stand up. They don't slither. Apophis does later, but he's also a sea serpent. He spends a lot of time in the Nile, he sinks boats, and he goes out to the sea and where he creates chaos and disorder. That should sound familiar if you've been reading Job and some of these other things. A lot, there's a tremendous amount of overlap here. So I'm not trying to, to bring a whole bunch of Egyptian theology. What I'm trying to help you understand is an ancient Hebrew who read this would have had a specific mindset, and some of these things that are so mystifying to us would have made a lot of sense because they had a very clear concept of walking, Serpents, deceptive serpents, talking serpents, not your typical beast of the field serpents. They knew about snakes, of course. Those are pretty dominant in Egypt, but they, but they had this understanding that there's more going on there. And that's not isolated to them. If you go, um, it's an interesting uh, uh, and very uh, consuming um, dedication of time, but there's this, if you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we have copies of this, there's a lot of other stuff there too. And it's stuff that was preserved by these Essenes who were kind of the other sect versus the Pharisees as we get into Jesus' time, and they preserved all these ancient writings. And I thought just as an interesting, um, an interesting exercise, it, it'd be fascinating to go back and kind of see like, well, what was the context people were reading this stuff in? The first thing you're gonna wind up spending a lot of time in is the book of Enoch, which is well worth it, and is referenced in scripture, and actually provides, doesn't change theology, but provides a lot of context mostly to understand what were these guys thinking when they read this. Jesus alludes to it, Jude quotes it, Peter quotes it, it's, it influences Paul's theology clearly. So it's interesting to know, well, what were they considering when they said these things? So when somebody says the serpent, well, we're thinking like, I, I had a ball python in college, right? That's not what they're thinking. It's because, and it, the way they're thinking actually makes a lot more sense in the context. When they say God separates the light from the darkness or God steps in and orders chaos, it matters. And so much of the, the, uh, the narrative of this, these ancient books are showing in contrast to the other creation narratives that were out there that tried to stand up gods like Marduk and Ra as the, as the supreme gods, but it always showed these conflicts and these big things, and it says, no, no, Yahweh, He doesn't even fight. He just speaks. There is no direct, you get, you get this enemy that sneaks in later, but he's not, be, Yahweh's not being chased across the sky every day. That's Ra. Yahweh's not in a constant struggle of equals. Yahweh is different. Yahweh has a plan, and Yahweh's in control. And Yahweh can look at the serpent and say, 
you're cursed, and by the way, you're going to be crushed. The other gods couldn't do that. And the gods of, uh, of, of Babylon in particular, which were kind of the role reversal, saying, hey, what we say is bad is good, and, and they, they kind of glorified in that, this, this narrative of creation speaks directly against those gods and puts them in their place because it shows that Yahweh is better and more powerful. And it's correct because it explains more. It, it, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing to, as you've heard from some of our others, it doesn't mean there's nothing to the rest of those. There's a reason they all saw this struggle of good and evil. There's a reason there was this, this powerful pantheon that they were dealing with, and the Bible doesn't directly discount that. It just says Yahweh is the supreme. So who are you going to worship? And that's the question that these creation narratives are putting in front of them. So you have this serpent. If you go all the way back to... Uh, there's a, a text called the, the book of Amram. Amram was Moses' father. And this, was, this is just context, guys. I'm not, I'm not making a theological point here. It's just context. Amram was Moses' father. And there's a text in the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Testament of Amram. There's also a Testament of Noah and a Testament of several others. And they're, they're worth reading because it tells you the context of what people were thinking. Well, Amram calls Moses and Aaron and Miriam to his bedside when he's dying in this text. And it's short. It's, you know, printed three or four pages. And he kind of tells the story of his life, and he highlights some things that happened. And they do tend to correspond with uh, rabbinical tradition. Then he says this really weird thing. He says, you know, I had this vision, and there were two watchers. Keep that in mind, watchers. There were two watchers, and they were arguing. So I asked them, what are you arguing about? And they said, now remember, this is, this is text that well predates Christ. And he said, what are you arguing about? And they said, well, we're put in charge of the nations, and we're trying to see who's better, and you have to decide which of us you're going to serve. And then he said, then I realized there was this guy standing beside me. And I asked him, well, who are they? And he said, they're darkness. They'll lead you only to darkness. But if you follow me, I'll lead you to light and life. And Amran said, so I took a closer look at these guys in front of me, and they had these beautiful shining clothes and these cloaks around them, but as he turned, and some, these texts are fragmented, so we have to piece it together, but he says, as he turned, then I was terrified because his face was a serpent. And then the other one turned, and his face was another kind of serpent. So Amram, in these ancient texts that are directly correlated with the Mosaic texts, is describing these walking, talking, supernatural, reptilian beings that claimed authority on earth. Now, I'm not creating a new theology around there, but this is the kind of stuff that the people who were reading this were familiar with. So, we get to this. Now, the serpent was more crafty. They'd say, yeah, he is. They'd say, and, and he comes in, and he's talking to Eve, and they're going, ah, bad idea. Eve probably shouldn't listen to the serpent. We all know the serpent's a problem. The serpent brings darkness. The serpent brings chaos. The serpent brings disorder. And we know that the serpent and Yahweh are not friends. So we go through, and I'm not going to rehash too much of that. And you get all the way through to uh, Eve listens to the serpent. She eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gives it to Adam. And he eats, 
And scripture tells us Eve was deceived, Adam was not, he was just doing what he was told, which was the inverse because he had been put in authority over creation, and they basically, they handed their authority over to the serpent and said, we'll do what you tell us. So they took this authority that God had given them, and they handed it over, and the first thing they realize is they're naked. Now, you've got to pay attention, and Johnny touched on this a little bit last week, that what does, it, what does it repeat here? They saw the fruit was good. They saw it was good for the appetite. So you have eyes and stomach, and then they saw it was good for knowledge and self-promotion. So you have eyes and stomach and ego. And those trumped their ears. Their ears was where God had told them what to do. And you have the eyes and stomach and ego say, don't pay attention to what the ears heard. Let's just go with what we want. And you think that, that sin, and sin does this so much, you think that it's going to give you freedom, but it doesn't. The first thing they realize is they're naked. So the first thing they have to do is hide from each other because they're, where they were unashamed, now they're ashamed. And so they make, it says, uh, loincloths, or another one is aprons. They, just, they put these figs together. So they're hiding, first of all, from each other. And then they hear something, and it's God. And now they've got to hide from Him, too. So, because they don't want to be seen by each other and they don't want to be seen by Him because they've taken their vision and they focused it on their own selves. So they heard God and they go and they hide from Him. And God asks them, what's going on? And he says, well, I was afraid because I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? And um, uh, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames a serpent. And then we're starting in verse 14, and this is our text for today. The Lord God said to the serpent. So, who's the serpent? This is worth spending a few minutes on because it's all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament doesn't talk about the, the devil, per se, or Satan, per se. It doesn't. It has this, this presence of something evil and malevolent but he doesn't really get a distinct name until the New Testament. And Jesus, and that's, Jesus is the one who names him. Jesus is the one who says, it's the devil, guys, or Satan. The Old Testament, when it uses the word Satan, it's just kind of using a title that says Satan. Now, don't get freaked out by that. What it means is there's a narrative that's clarifying more and more and becoming clearer and clearer, and it comes to a head in Christ to where the characters are very clearly defined. I'm not saying there's no devil in the Old Testament. There is, absolutely but he's hiding in a lot of places, and he's a little hard to see. And you get these different creatures, and you go, wait, is this the devil, or is this the devil, or is this the devil? What is it? Because there's all kinds of different names. There's a lot of actual proper names in the Hebrew that just get translated into words that we don't know. Like one of the, uh, in the ancient texts, including the book of Enoch, one of the names that is given to one of the really bad guys who may be the devil is Belial. Do you know the name Belial is in the Bible all over the place? But they just translate it as the worthless one. So they say sons of Belial, they just say worthless guys, which is true, but it kind of misses part of, the, part of the point, right? If they're saying sons of Belial, I want to know sons of Belial. Another one is Azazel. Azazel is one of the ones that Enoch says led, uh, helped lead the rebellion. Now, Enoch never specifically says, this guy is the devil, but he sets different people up with different names, and they may be the same, and they may not be the same. Shemyaza, Azazel, Belial, these are all titles and names that are given to these highly, highly rebellious supernatural creatures. And we don't have to figure it all out because Revelation gives us the answers. But did you know Azazel's in the Bible? 
Anybody see it in there? It never shows up in the English translations until recently. It's the scapegoat narrative. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, where they, where, uh, they have to do the Day of Atonement and there's two goats, he says, get the two goats, have one for Yahweh and one for Azazel. And they translate Azazel as scapegoat. So they say one for Yahweh and one's the scapegoat. It's not the scapegoat, it's a name. It's a name. It's a guy. So who's the serpent? Flip, uh, you're at the beginning of your Bible, flip about that far to the end of your Bible. And we're going to go to uh, Revelation 3. And then we're going to go to Revelation uh, 12. Actually, I'm sorry, go to 12 and then we'll go to uh, 20. We can't go to 3 right now. I'm in Romans 12. That's not the same thing. It's good, but it's not going to help us today. There we go, Revelation 12. Okay, Revelation 12, 9, and I'm gonna, I've got to speed up here. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Clear enough? Is there a devil? Yes. What is he? He's a deceiver. He's ancient. He's a serpent. And he's a dragon. All those same things in that one verse. If you need a second reference for it, go real quickly to Revelation 20, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Satan is the word that just means uh, adversary. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So what's the problem? What's, this, what's the thing this devil's always doing? He's deceiving. But deceiving whom? Nations. He's deceiving the whole world. We're going to get a little bit strange here. We're already a little bit strange. We're going to get stranger. This is, you know, I'm strange all the time. But um, go to Isaiah 14. This is a longer passage, but I want you guys to listen to this narrative. And then we're going to jump through the rest of this. This is God talking to Babylon, okay? So Babylon is the, the civilization that sets itself up in opposition to God. It's in the Tower of Babel, which I'll teach on in a handful of weeks, and it's, uh, it's all through Scripture as the opposition to God, and it's very much present in Revelation, and the devil's the one who's in charge of it. There's your, your cheat sheet for the end. Talk to the king of Babylon. I'm in Isaiah 14.4. So he's saying, speak to the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. The scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying there were a bunch of guys, and he's talking to the king of Babylon. He says, look, it's all quieted. It's all stopped. All of you guys who were ruling the nations violently and maliciously. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. The earth breaks forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice in the cedars of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon is always the, the patriarchs saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Now that gets weird. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. 
it rouses the shades to greet you. Whose Bible says shades in there? Does anybody else's Bible? So we're in uh, 14.9. Anybody else say something else? The spirits, anything else? Place of the dead. Okay. The word there, and this is one of those things that I get annoyed with that uh, English translations just don't put it. The word is Rephaim. Who are the Rephaim? Rephaim. They're the ancient dead spirits. They're, they're these mighty dead spirits, basically these, these ever-living demons. We'll talk about that later, but just whet your appetite. It rouses these Rephaim to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. Is this getting weird? Because you think like kings of the nations, that's like, that's people, right? That's like Saul and David and no. The nations are led supernaturally. Now, there are, rule, there, there are people who are put in charge of them, but all through Scripture, it's very consistent that the nations are run by supernatural beings, and God allocates these nations to them, and He scolds them when they do a really bad job, okay? We have previous sermons on that that go into a lot more detail. It raises from their thrones all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, ruler of Babylon, you too have become as weak as we. You've become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. That's kind of upsetting. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn? The Latin word for that is Lucifer, the shining one. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man? Now, that word man, it's not the same word as Adam. It just means is this, is this the, sometimes it's used for champion or mighty one or just male, who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world, now pay attention to this, look like a desert. It's the inverse of Eden. So this is what happens at the fall, and we're going to go through it here. At the fall, you have Adam and Eve taken out of Eden and sent into a wilderness. And the world struggles in this wilderness state until Christ can reconcile it back to Eden. That's what I'm going to show you today. That's what happens in the fall. He made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. Verse 18, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. It's another strange one. But you are cast away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill, and fill the face of the world with cities. You get a sense for the conflict that's going on here? What's happening in Genesis 3? Who did God put in charge of the earth? He put the man and the woman in charge of the earth, and he said, let's go, uh, let's look at the blessing. In 128, God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves. Satan comes in and says, no, this is going to be mine. And he takes it, 
and he's turning it into a wasteland, and the, the, the threat is that he brings these supernatural beings and he corrupts them from what they should be, and he wants them to rule the earth. And so he's constantly deceiving the, and leading the nations astray and filling it with violence and wickedness. If you asked an ancient Hebrew, what's responsible for the sin in the world? What, so let's take our, our Western evangelical. Who, whose fault is it that the world is full of sin? What do we say? You know, we say it's Adam and Eve, right? Say it's Adam and Eve. They sinned. What does the Old Testament say is responsible for the sin in the world? Satan and his ongoing effort. Now, that doesn't mean that Adam's sin wasn't legitimate because Paul tells us Adam sinned and it brought sin into mankind. That's where mankind fell. But the, the very distinct Old Testament narrative is that there's an ongoing push and struggle to corrupt the world. That's why we have this deceiver of the nations consistently trying to turn it into a wasteland. And unfortunately, we human beings, mankind, are all too often willing helpers. But when we resist and struggle, then there's a resistance against us, isn't there? There's a very clear resistance. And this is what I want you all to open your eyes to, brothers and sisters. The Christian walk is not just this walk of uh, just trying to be better and trying to do better and trying to be a little kinder and a little nicer. Those are important things by Christ. But there is a battle, and it's a true, real, real-time, ongoing battle, and it's escalating. It's escalating. Go back to Genesis 3. Get one more creepy spot, and then if you guys can bear with me, we'll go just a, just a few minutes longer today. All right, thank you. Appreciate that. I can't keep anybody here, so... Um, What's the first thing he says to the serpent? Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The word there is seed, between your seed and her seed. Okay, what's the seed of Eve? Well, ultimately, we know it's Jesus, right? It's an actual nation that God draws out, and we know through the genealogy of Jesus that he uses the woman and not the man to create Jesus. And that's really cool, and there's a lot of super cool things in there. And if you, if you want to go back and look at that, then uh, Matthew chapter 1, way back in the cafeteria, way back in the last building, then we, uh, I taught on the genealogies. The seed, between your seed and her seed. Well, what's, what's his seed? What is that? What's the seed of Satan? Now, there's a couple of things. Well, for, first of all, who are the family of Christ? Well, the family of Christ is two things, and Johnny mentioned this before. There's there's the symbol and there's the reality. There's the reality and the symbol that reflect each other. The family of Christ, we're the family of Christ if we're in Christ. But also there's a very specific genetic lineage of Christ that was necessary and that the serpent constantly, constantly tried to destroy. Starting in the very next chapter with Cain and Abel, the serpent is going to start trying to destroy the offspring of the woman. Constantly. All through Scripture. Over and over and over. This kingly line all the way through Shem, all the way through David. It's going to be attacked again and again, and again, and it's always going to be barely preserved until we get to Christ, and then the serpent's going to attack him. And what Paul tells us is if, if they had any idea what they were doing, then those evil beings, the, those, those evil powers would not have murdered Christ because they didn't realize they were bringing about their own defeat. That's what Paul tells us. So we have this seed of the woman. We understand what that is. What's the seed of the serpent? Well, symbolically, 
it's whoever does what he wants, right? Symbolically, but is there an actuality to it? Now, this gets eerie, but I told you I was going to dangle some things. And it's up to you to decide if you want to follow up on this. I'm not going to preach extensively on it. Go to Daniel. It's right after Ezekiel. Go to Daniel chapter 2. What's happening in Daniel chapter 2? You have this Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's showing the progression of humanity through kingdoms until the end of the age. And he's very troubled by it, and he's really upset, and then he gets, to, and finally Daniel comes in and says, here's what it means. That's the very short Cliff Notes version. There's a, it's a, Daniel's super cool. Go to 2.42, and if you've read this, what you know is there's the head of gold, and then it starts to go to bronze, and then you get all the way down to the toes and the feet, which is the last kingdom before the end of the age. And the toes of the feet, I'm in 42, were partly iron and partly clay. Who's clay? Who's made of clay? Dust. We are. We're the clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Now this is verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix. Now this is what the English translation says. So they will mix with one another in marriage. Anybody else have a translation that says something different? There you go. That's a little more accurate. Because the word there, now Daniel is written in Aramaic, but the Hebrew equivalent word is seed. It says they will mix their seed with the seed of men. And then it says, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Is there a reptilian seed, a real thing? Are we going to see this in Scripture? Well, we're going to get to Genesis 6, and we are going to see that there was an effort, a genetic mixing. And the question that you guys can decide for yourself is, is that still going on? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so we get past the curse of the serpent, and then he says to the woman, and basically what happens here, and I'm just going to have to accelerate through this, but you guys have heard a lot of this stuff on the teaching of, of uh, men and women and what happens. But basically, the woman and the man both have work to do, and part of their blessing was to be fruitful and increase in number, to bear children, and to subdue the earth and work it. And basically, God says, pain for you and pain for you in that. So happy Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> so pain for the woman and, and her role, her work in fulfilling the blessing, fulfilling the task that they were given. Their, their job was to extend Eden to the ends of the world and by representing God as his imager. Instead, they get thrown out of Eden, and the man has to suffer as a result because now his work of actually subduing the ground gets harder and harder, and there's some cool symbolism there. So they get pain. I want to go, we're going to fast forward to the end, because what happens after that is the Lord God said in verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us, he's talking to his counsel there, knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out, he drove out the man, he made a covering for them, and there was a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. But he drives the man out. So here's what the man and woman are facing. 
exile, curse of work that is painful, no tree of life, no longer allowed to eat from all the trees in Eden. Now they're eating from the plants of the field, so their diet is worse. They're naked, and they're homeless, and they're cursed. That's what they're facing. And that's this reality in which we live. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 has so much good stuff to say about this passage, not directly but indirectly. For we know, I'm in verse 1, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, then we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, so he's talking about a new home for us. And we want that because our original home, Eden, we all got kicked out of. For in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's a really, really important word. That word's okotirian. It means habitat. It's something that you put on. It's a different kind of clothing. It's only used here and one other place in the Bible. And that place is in Jude 6. You go to Jude 6. I know we're going a lot of places, but I'm going to tie all this together in a moment. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position and position of authority, but left their properly dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Leave off that second part as much as I'm tempted to go there. What does he say? The angels took off their okotarian, their clothing, so that they could disobey God and join people. Paul says, we're longing to put on our okotarian, our habitat, our clothes. We don't want to be naked. How do I know that? Because he says, if indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent... So think of this tent as like those, the animal skins that they were given. We groan, being burdened. Not that we would be naked. We don't want it taken away. We don't want to be, just be, have nothing. But that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden, naked, homeless, cursed, living in a wasteland that is now run by the devil. It's the inverse of Eden. Paul's saying, we're groaning in this state, and you can feel it, and I can feel it. We're groaning in this state because we know that there's supposed to be something better. There's a habitat we're supposed to put on. There's a new clothing we're supposed to put on because we don't want to be naked. We don't want to be naked like Adam and Eve were suddenly in the garden and freaking out because they were naked and trying to cover themselves. And God rejects that covering and gives them instead a temporary covering that requires death. So we're groaning for something better. Let's have the worship team come on up. Go back to Revelation. And we're just, I'm going to speed to the end here. Revelation 21. I'm just going to read from 21, 22 into the first part of 22. What's happening here, guys, is this is the story of how Christ fulfills Eden. He brings a new, restored Eden. 
And those things, the pain in the work, the nakedness, the curse, and the homelessness, and the lack of the tree of life, he addresses all of those things. And I saw no temple in the city. Eden's basically, in the theology, Eden's functionally a temple. For the Lord God, for, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Remember what we read about kings of the earth earlier in Isaiah 14? And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. All about these nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, for they will, have no, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. And then he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place, and behold, I am coming soon. Skip to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's not naked, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Do you see how it's this inverse of the Eden curse? That we can come clothed, welcomed back into the city and eating of the tree of life and restored to purpose and perfection through Christ. I want to... Um, Let's uh, start our worship time, and after uh, our first song, I'll come back and give a very short devotional on how Christ has done this for us. Let's worship together. So we go through everything we just discussed, and we we're looking at this plot of Genesis and this fall and the, the exodus from Eden and being driven out from Eden and being naked and, and homeless and cursed and unable to eat from the tree of life. And then we see at the end of the book that somehow we are clothed and cleaned and welcomed into a city where nothing cursed can enter and able to eat from the tree of life. You guys can have a seat. I'm going to take just a few minutes. So how, how did that happen? And we just sing about Christ alone, cornerstone, thy hope is on, nothing else. And we, we look at how we have this, this heavenly garment we long to put on and you get these, these disobedient angels who throw it off so that they can come sin against God. And somehow, all this comes back to this, this Jesus, this cornerstone. 
this cornerstone that the builders rejected, and the builders are the ones who built Babylon and maybe some other things. Here's a brain teaser. What's the only building where the cornerstone is the same as the capstone? I want you guys to think about that, because Jesus talks about it. I'm going to read this curse of Adam, and, and God doesn't directly curse Adam. He curses the earth, but I'm going to tweak a couple of things. Verse 17, and to Jesus He said, because Adam has listened to the voice of his wife and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded him not to eat of it, cursed is the earth because of him. In pain you shall eat of it the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. you shall eat of the plants of, your field, of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall become bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. In other words, you have in this same passage, you have a tree, curse, thorns, sweat, and death. Does that all sound familiar? Who died on a tree? Who wore thorns on the tree? Who sweat blood facing the tree? Who became the bread of life to address the curse of the earth? It's all the same elements. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Well, we have this curse here that says to Adam, you're going to eat bread based on your pain and your struggle from the earth. Who was actually taken out of the earth? Who was lifted out? Who was the forerunner of our resurrection? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And as I say so many times, Jesus was here on a twofold mission. He wanted his people back. And in order to do that, he had to redeem this, this Edenic problem. But he also has to defeat evil. He has to defeat this wicked uprising that is so often referred to as the nations. And he has to restore the worship to himself because he is the rightful king. And only then does that wasteland, that desert, get redeemed back into a fulfilled Eden. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish... He's contrasting us with Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Very different from that Isaiah 14 passage we read about Lucifer. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, 
You see that, that habitat shift? They don't use the same word, but it's the same concept. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, does that happen in the end? Go to Revelation 15. find my spot here. There we go. Yeah, it's right here in the Bible. <laughs> Let me go real quick. Um, I might have the wrong passage here, but it's in Revelation, and there's a five involved. I do know that. <laughs> here we go. Okay. Yes, Revelation 5, not 15, sorry. Okay, it's a circus up here, guys. I got to deal with this all the time. And between the throne, I'm in 5, 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. We'll save that for later. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked... And I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands and thousands. Don't skim over that. How much is going on out there? When it says everything on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, are we talking big numbers? It's not even talking about people here. Angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So what's the point of all this, guys? The point is that the Bible isn't just telling a story of how we made some mistakes and how Jesus showed us a better way and we, and we can do a little better. It's not, that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is that God is the mighty one who separates out the light from the darkness. He's the will to whom all wills reconcile. And he's created a lot. He's created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And we read through in uh, Colossians uh, last time I was up here that, that it's all done through Jesus. 
And then we learn that there's a, a rebellion against him. And that rebellion is a, a violent, vicious, depraved rebellion. And you get these beings who are willing to exit heaven in order to turn against God. And we read about them in Psalm 2 saying, let's try and throw off this, this mighty one forever. We don't have to do what he says anymore. And in the middle of all that, God's created these little dirt people, this man and this woman, who he gives his image, but they're in this very fragile dust thing. And the being, but, and he gives them rule, rulership over the earth. So what happens? So you get the, the rebellion against God, say, well, we don't like that. And they say, we're going to destroy it. It's going to be ours, and we're going to fill the earth, and we're going to multiply, and we're going to subdue it, even though he told Adam and Eve to fill and subdue it. So they come in, and they lead the man and the woman, when I say they, I mean the devil, who leads them, leads the man and the woman away from God, turns them against God, and breaks their relationship with them so that they'll die. And they get kicked out of Eden. And God puts a cherubim there to guard the way to the tree of life. What do we always think there? Well, we, we don't want, I mean, you can't have, it was the teaching, and I've, I've taught this myself in the past before I'd really looked into it, but it's a hard question. Is he trying to stop Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life? Well, on one hand, you don't want them to live eternally in a death state. And why a cherubim? Why the mightiest of angels? He could have just put a, like, keep outside and some barbed wire and they Adam and Eve would have been dealt with, but why a cherubim? Who doesn't want the tree of life to exist? Satan. Satan's the one who doesn't want the tree of life to exist. Why? Well, we read about it in Revelation 20. What does the tree of life do? It heals the nations. So God better guard the tree of life because he's got powerful enemies. So you get this garden, the, the tree of life garden, so you get the, the man and woman out there, and then Satan actually gets his angels to come in and try and destroy the offspring, first by Cain killing Abel, then by trying to interbreed with them to corrupt the seed of the woman. That's in, in uh, Genesis chapter 6. You can get excited for that. It's cool. We're going to spend time there. And that goes all the way on through Scripture, and you get all kinds of stuff, and it gets so nasty and messed up that he has to bring a flood to destroy it all and wipe it out. But it doesn't really wipe it out, it just kind of slows it down. Because there's still people, and they're still evil, and they're still evil, evil beings. So God draws out for himself, uh, uh, he preserves a line. The line becomes a, um, a new population on the earth. The devil comes in and says, let's turn this population back into trying to get to these fallen angels. And that's the story of Babel. They're building a temple, ultimately. They want, they want to get back to heaven, their concept of heaven. God comes down and says, I don't like this. He splits them up, and as we read in Deuteronomy uh, 30 and 32, He assigns these new nations to the sons of God, and He draws one out for Himself, calls Abraham in the very next passage. And all through Abraham, He brings, He keeps working His way down to the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. And all through Scripture, the serpent is constantly trying to end it, and He still is today. He still is today. But Jesus comes, and He dies, and we just read it in two different places, and there's a whole lot of other places, that He dies to pay for the sin, 
to call his people back to him, to restore the kingship where it should be, which is why Jesus is always saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and to crush the evil one so that he can establish a fulfilled Eden on the earth, which is what happens at the very, very end that we read today. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, time. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for your word. Lord, open our eyes, Father, to the, the struggle that is around us. And this is why we're reminded our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but there are powers and principalities and authorities that are trying to destroy your people, Lord. And in the name of Jesus, we are your people, flawed as we might be, made of dust as we currently are, you've called us to something bigger and better, Father, and we want that. So, Lord, even though we groan, help us not to forget the eager expectation. Help us to hang on to it. Help us to read your word intentionally, looking at what it really says, and worship who you really are, not just a nice teacher, not just an example, not just somebody who who died to, to lift some guilt off of us, but the creator of all, the king of all, the ruler of all, and the one who reconciles everything to himself. Lord, help us to resist the devil. You'll tell us in the next chapter of Genesis that the devil's there. He wants us. He desires us. But that we must master. And that happens through you, Jesus. Amen. Let's take communion together, remembering what Jesus did. Let's uh, remember the, um, every, the everything we have belongs to God, and let's worship together.